Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. Um, joining me via Zoom from her home in Virginia is my friend Jamie Clemmer. Welcome to the podcast, Jamie. Thank you for having me, Richard. Will you spell your name? You're kind of a cool first name and last name. Just spell <laughs> your name so people can get it in your, their minds before we start. I will. It's J-A-I-M-E. And nobody spells it with the I first. So you will always remember J-A-I-M-E because it's pretty unusual. And tell us how to spell your last name. Yes. C-L-E-M-M-E-R. And, and I gonna, don't run into too many Clemmers either. So well, there you go. You can find Jamie. <laughs> um, we're going to talk the I like, as you know, listeners to tell you what we're going to talk about before we dive in. So you can kind of be aware. We're going to talk about Jamie has written a book about the death, the sudden death of her 10 year old son, Sawyer, who died in February of 2006. Sorry, that's when he was born. He died in October of 2016, five years ago. And I'll read a little bit about this book. Um, this book was produced by Cedar Fort, but it's a Deseret book. Um, we live in a culture that seldom speaks openly about grief. In some instances, we're even embarrassed to show our sorrow. Why are we ashamed to cry? Why do we feel that sharing sadness is unacceptable? How can we effectively mourn with those that mourn if no one's willing to share their heartache? So I love that, Jamie, and I love those open-ended questions that cause us to look inward and think we need to improve our culture so we can better um, minister and bear and comfort when really difficult, sort of your worst case nightmares become reality. That's so right. listeners, that's kind of the introduction. I just, you know, we don't visit a long time before we start these podcasts. I kind of like to turn <laughs> over to guests and trust my guests that... They'll be able to share their story. Obviously, Jamie can tell the story of Sawyer better than anybody else, along with her husband. And um, so I'll just kind of turn it over to you. I don't know if there's things you want to clarify on the bio or just you can just go nope. wherever you want to go. That's right. Nope. I, you know, I do a lot of things and I have a lot of roles, but as I say in the book, you know, the one role that I was given that I didn't ask for that I actually hate is this bereaved mother title. And it, you know, is never something that anybody asks for, of course, but it is something that occupies who I am and, and it will till I die. You know, I'm the mother of four children, three who are living, one who is not. And what I found was that I started writing after Sawyer died. It was very unexpected. We had a very healthy 10-year-old, gregacious, funny, outspoken, unique, outrageous child. And he was just sort of this crazy boy who was overly healthy, but who had a lot of accidents, if you will, um, because he was so outrageous. He liked to skateboard. He would fall on his skateboard. In the book, I say that nothing ever good happens on a half day release because I think three years in a row, we ended up in the emergency room from like a, a broken arm because he was skateboarding down the stairs or a broken shoulder because he got in a tub and slid down the hill, you know, things like that. So, so he was very healthy and very active and he had gone on a trip with his dad to San Diego to spend time with his, um, my, my husband's extended family and his parents and whatnot. 
and they came back and he went to school and it was, it was unfortunately during his social studies class, he, he started to get sick and he did go to the nurse's office and had a seizure where, um, wherein he had a series of seizures thereafter and he did not recover. Um, wow. I know we said it a little bit in the intro, but again, this, wow. um, I like to give a trigger anytime I do a trigger warning. Anytime I do one of these shows, it's like, I, um, first of all, I will likely cry and that's okay. I'm okay with my tears. So I hope listeners are okay with my tears too. And that's part of the reason I do these podcasts is because I'd like to normalize the grief process a little more. And so, um, sometimes people will say, well, I, I, it was sad, but I didn't cry and that's okay too. You know, I think sometimes we have this prescription for how we think grief should sound like, or look like, or feel like, and, and that's not really accurate. That's not really true. So, so that's again, one of the reasons I wrote the book and I just started writing and writing and writing it. And then I said, I set all of my words aside and, um, I, I processed a lot of my grief through Facebook. Um, I didn't like going out in public, but I did find that as I was interacting with people, I would have these sometimes amazingly powerful and spiritual experiences. And sometimes these amazingly awful experiences where people just said and did the worst things. And I thought this, this can't be real. You know, how am I dealing with the death of my child, my surviving children, my marriage, and then I'm also dealing with these people that I interact with on a daily basis who really have no idea how to handle me or our situation or conversations or, you know, sit in the pew next to me at church or interact with me as a colleague at work. And so I would process a lot of experiences through Facebook. And what I found was that a lot of people started messing me, messaging me, um, people who had lost siblings as children, but I didn't even know they had siblings. And they would say things like, thank you so much. I feel like as you process your grief, I'm processing my grief. My brother died. And as soon as he died, we took all the pictures down on the walls. We didn't talk about him and we just pretended like he didn't exist. So thank you for helping me process my issue by dealing with your issue. And, you know, I would have people reach out to me and say, I've struggled for 20 years because I haven't been able to have children. And anytime I sort of edge towards that conversation at church, people sort of put me in my place. And I realized quickly that that's not a conversation people want to have. And so I just process it. And I stopped going to church for 10 years because of it. Thank you for being an open platform to talk about the grief and the ugly. And so as I started getting a lot of comments like this from people I knew and people I, I didn't really know, I thought, I wonder if those words that I wrote back then could be of use to anyone. And so that's how the book was born. So it was pretty exciting um, you know, to finally have someone say, yes, your experience is valid and we want to hear about it and we want to learn from it. So. Uh, thank you. Thank you for telling us a little bit about Sawyer that awful day. I mean, I just can't imagine sending a child to school where it's a safe place and to have that kind of a medical 
situation happen that cost him his life. It has to be the furthest thing from your mind. He's just back from a trip. He's 10. He's just full of life. And to have that day happen is just is just so painful and so unexpected. And then I love that you wrote. You know, I'm not a therapist, but I recognize that writing is... But then I love that you shared your experience, it sounds like, through Facebook. And then people that are kind of walking the same road are connecting with the content you're creating, and it's helping them. Mm-hmm. Um, talk more about Sawyer. Talk more about the book. Talk more about just how we can improve. A lot of this po- podcast platform is... This platform is supportive of the church, but it's also okay to kind of take an inward look at our culture of what we can do better. Um, so that, That's right. So that more people can just feel like church is the balm of Gilead for them and really healing for them. Right. The hospital, you know, instead of the uh, perfect temple made of glass that we can't uh, do anything about. Um, you know, it's interesting because I find that one of the most important things for me is by sharing my story, I noticed that it gives license for other people to tell their story. And there are some bereaved parents who disagree with me when I say this, and I'm okay with that. Um, Of course, I do not know that there's another grief as, well, actually, I'm not even going to qualify that. There's no, all grief is different, but I do believe that at its basic, basic root, once you strip away everything else, grief is grief. And so a story that I share in the book is about my husband and my husband's friend who was going through a divorce and they hadn't spoken in a couple of years and they reconnected after Sawyer died. And he was going through a very difficult, sad divorce. It was very complicated and they would talk and they would share their feelings about grief. And he would talk about sort of losing his eternal family, if you will, through the divorce. And Jack would talk about Sawyer's death and his friend would constantly say, but, but I know mine's not as bad, but you know, he's going through these hard things and he would try to justify, well, I know it's, you know, it's not as bad as your thing. It's not as bad as your thing. And it was kind of this recognition that we all have painful things. We all have these trials that we go through, but I think sometimes in faith-based cultures, particularly our faith-based culture, we have a real need for, you know, enzyme endings, right? We want to, to skip from the trial to the triumph. And we don't ever want to talk about the dirty underbelly of grief. We don't want to talk about the dirty, ugly parts that are in the middle. Because sometimes I think there's this notion that if we focus too much on that dirty, ugly part, you know, are we being faithless? Do we not have enough faith because we are focused on the sad or the trial or the hurt or the pain? Because if we have enough faith, you know, things can happen. And one of the messages that I like to spread is that ensign endings aren't everywhere. They don't happen to everyone. And while they are lovely and miracles happen, miracles don't happen for everyone. And when Sawyer was in the hospital, we had people praying from around the world. Jack had been a bishop. Jack's dad had been a stake president twice. They had served three missions and had missionaries all over the world, temples all over the world, people much more faithful than I could ever dream of being, praying for Sawyer to live. And Sawyer didn't live. And so, you know, when we say we just need to pray and we honor and exalt 
the miracles that happen after prayer, I think we have to be careful about how we exalt and perpetuate those stories because while they are miracles and they are wonderful, that's not how every story finishes. And so then it belittles those of us who didn't get that ending. And it makes us wonder, well, I thought God cared about me, but, but I didn't get my miracle ending. So what does that mean? And, you know, I think grief and faith are really complicated. And that intersection of faith and grief is something that nobody's really talking about in an in-depth way. So I, it's my hope that by sharing Sawyer's story, we can have some of those more intense conversations. Jamie, there's some great nuggets in there. Um, this phrase, end sign ending, and <laughs> how that didn't happen for you. Um, and perhaps in the next life, we have more end sign endings as we, you know, see the full scope of, of, mort- of immortality. But That's you're right. absolutely right. You don't have an end sign ending. Sawyer is gone. Um, some prior guests have sort of talked about this idea that, well, Sawyer's in a better place and everything happens for a reason. And most of my guests like you, those phrases aren't particularly helpful. <laughs> um, a little too trite for me. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you want to elaborate on that? Just why? Because yeah, I, I sure. would have said those in the past until people walking your road would say those aren't particularly helpful. They may be helpful for me just to sort of keep life in a nice tidy box for me, but they don't help That's the right. person suffering. It's kind of funny, actually, Richard, my son, who's at BYU, entered a speech contest. It was after Sawyer died, but before he left on his mission to London. And it was about the phrase, um, how are you doing? And this idea that we ask people that in the grocery store, but we really don't want to know how they're doing, right? We really want, we don't want that dissected over fruit or over the sale of the week item. And so we really need to change our language. And one of the chapters in the book is called how the English language routinely fails me. And it does, and it did. And I think it fails all grievers. And some of those things that you said, you know, God has a plan. I'll tell you a story. While we were in the hospital, I have a friend who um, also has a faith-based culture, but it's different than mine. And she kept saying, Jamie, stop, you know, God has a plan. God has a plan over and over. And Sawyer went through three brain surgeries. And I sort of think the last one they did, they did more for me and my husband to give it one last shot. But really, you know, I think he was gone before then. But, um, but I finally said, you cannot say God has a plan one more time. If you say that one more time, I'm going to need to ask you to leave. Because if this is God's plan, if God's plan is to take Sawyer and leave me with nothing in his place, and he's just gone from my life, then I hate God's plan. And quite frankly, I need God now more than ever. So I can't hate him or his plan because I need him. So I need you to step aside and I need you to stop saying that. And we need to refocus our energy in a different way. Another one you hear is, you know, yes, he's in a, in a better place. I had gone after Sawyer died. It took a long time for me to go out in public, but I eventually decided that I, I had to, for many reasons, I had to. So I started going back to an Institute class that I had been going to, and it's a very large class. I mean, it's for, you know, working adults. I mean, there were probably a hundred people in the class and, um, and for Virginia, that's sort of rare. That's not really what we, that's not what we do here in Virginia. You might do that in Utah, but we don't really do that here. So anyway, um, 
So I decided I was going to venture out to the class. So I sat in the back. I didn't really know anybody who else was going, but I thought I'm going to go. And you know that in the first 20 minutes of class, she started talking about someone else who died and how they were in a better place. And I just got up and left and I sat in my car and just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. And I just thought, okay. So eventually I went back to the class and I went to lunch afterwards and the teacher was there at the class. And she said, now remind me your son died, right? Kind of like, oh, you painted your house yellow that one time, right? Tell me what color you chose, you know, just very casually. And so I was already on, on guard a little bit, but then she said, well, aren't you so glad, you know, he's in a better place. Aren't you so glad, you know, where he's at. And it was all I could do. And I did it sometimes I maybe should have, but I didn't because I do have some sense of decorum, but I wanted to say, so which of your eight children would you want in that better place? Go. But, you know, it's unrealistic. There is no better place than in my arms being cuddled and loved by me. And so to say that it negates my emotions, it negates our family's emotions and our experiences. So while, yes, I do believe in heaven and I do believe that, you know, God is cuddling Sawyer in a way that I can't as his father and as his mother, I believe that, you know, Heavenly Mother is there just giving him the cuddles that I can't. Um, I don't need, I don't need that in my face. I don't need, I don't need that. Um, and so I just think it's really important that we watch what we say. And I think the way we can do that is by practicing what we say mm-hmm. ahead of time. We, we preach this about chastity all the time, right? Like how many of us have been in a Sunday school where they say, you know, don't come up with your phrase at midnight in a parked car, but come up with it ahead of time. What are you going to say to to get out of a situation or whatever. And I think, why don't we do that about all awkward situations, right? So why don't we have a line or something that we can say, because I may be the first person that you've met who's had a child who died, but I'm not the first person you met who's had something terrible happen to them. And so having something like, how's your heart today? Or I've been thinking about you lately, or you're on my mind a lot. You know, something that doesn't put someone on the spot can just be a rote line that you've practiced because we all know when someone's being sincere, right? We all have a sense of they've practiced this line in front of the mirror and they're just saying it to say it, or they don't know what else to say. So they're saying nothing. But if we have some language that's genuine to us, that's not something that you just pulled out of nowhere, you'll be better equipped to handle that situation just like you would in any awkward or difficult situation. And, and I think, Richard, I think it leads us into this idea about relationships and communication. And I think that is what a lot of it boils down to for me, relationships and communication. Um, I have a friend who's a psychologist and I had her edit the book for me before I decided to send it to a publisher. And after she read it, she's like, Jamie, it's great, but I don't think there's anything I can do that's right. (laughs) I'm like, no, 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 that's not the message, right? That's not the piece that we're trying to convey. You can do correct things, but you will also do things that are wrong and insensitive and offensive. So we, yes, need to worry about being less offended, but I think it's really important that we take onus on ourselves to not be so offensive to other people. And it's sort of a two-way road. And if we have give and we have take and we build relationships and have communication, we can say, you know what? Last week, this came up in the Sunday school lesson and I made this comment. And as I thought about it afterwards, 
I think I might've hurt your feelings inadvertently. Did I hurt your feelings inadvertently? And then that gives me the opportunity to say, no, I didn't even notice, but thanks for checking in with me. Or yes, I've been stewing about it all week. This is why it hurt my feelings. Can we talk about that? And having those conversations are the only way that we move toward a Zion people. It's the only way we can minister in effective relational ways. And, and to do that and have that communication, we have to have a relationship. I was thinking about something the other day. My husband is a principal and he decided to uh, buy a vending machine. It, you would just have no idea the crazy life we live. But anyway, so at like 930, because he wanted to buy a vending machine so that the teachers could, he could give it to them at a discounted rate, right? So they wouldn't make a profit. To, anyway. So it's 930 at night and we are in this newish ward. We've been here for like, almost two years now, but because of COVID, we don't really know anybody. And it's 9.30 at night. We're outside of school. We've got this vending machine. It's freezing cold. And we're like, we need to call somebody, but we have no one to call. We have no one to call to help us move this vending machine. Right. And, and of course, you know, there's, there's, I'm sure we could have called somebody, but it made me think if I can't, call somebody to help me move a vending machine at 9:30. Who am I going to call when my son is in a car crash and I'm in the hospital and I've got my 9-year-old who has to have a place to go? Right? If we don't build relationships over the little things, then there is no way that we will be able to be supportive on the big things. And so sometimes I think we cast aside the little things as oh, you know, taking cookies or this or that. But if we don't do the little things, then I don't think we have a foundation to do the big things as well. So Some really that's good. my two cents. It's, I love um, a couple of things really resonated with me. Back to even when your husband was having that experience about the, I think his friend going through a divorce and mm. about how they were trying to rank pain and how we shouldn't do that. We should validate everybody's pain and just sort of, walk with them in their pain and give each other permission to feel pain. I love some of then your really pro doable suggestions on what we should do. Like I've been, you know, and when someone has an imaginable loss, unimaginable losses, right. I've been thinking about you, you know, these sort of don't necessarily require you to do anything or respond, but it just helps people know you're kind of walking with them. And then I love this principle of relationship where if we're going to be with each other in the bigger moments to be present in the, just these little things that we do to show each other love in our communities, whatever that is, that doesn't, isn't dramatic, but it creates a foundation. So when you really need to reach out, it's people know that this is out of love and out of friendship and not out of duty or, and I, I love all the things you're sharing with us. Um, Listeners, I'm going to read all the titles, the chapter titles, and um, for a couple of reasons. One is I think it'd be good for you to hear all these chapter titles, so you'll go buy the book, um, <laughs> that, which is yeah, that. <laughs> part of the purpose of this podcast is to you know encourage you to buy the books, to help you to be in a, and also for all of us to be in a better position to help others that have a really difficult loss. But then as kind of, um, I have a hunch as I finish reading these titles that um, Jamie will have some titles specifically she'd like to talk a little bit more. So chapter one is called The End. Chapter two is called The Beginning. Chapter three is called The Middle. Chapter four is called The Donating. Chapter five is The Immediate Aftermath of Our Family. 
Chapter six, and this one did intrigue me, the public denial of my private grief. Chapter seven, the celebration of life. Chapter eight, which you've kind of mentioned, the English language routinely failed me. Chapter nine, the hospitality of grief. Chapter 10, the tasks of grief. Chapter 11, the quest to find my people. Chapter 12, the battle for my faith. Chapter 13, the I can't pronounce all these words. My wife needs to be here with me. The recipient. <laughs> Reciprocity of service. Reciprocity. Yep. There you go. Yep. This is why all our kids are asking <laughs> my wife. Chapter 14, the bereaved sibling. Chapter 15, the coping. Chapter 16, the conclusion. So uh, these are well-named chapter titles, Jamie. So I'll turn it back oh, to you. That's so kind of you. I love to hear you say that. Um, you know, as you as you talked about the little things you can do, it was great. I um I've been doing book groups. And so if anybody has a book group and they want me to zoom in on their book group, I'm happy to do that. Um, But I've been doing some of those and some of the conversations have been extremely valuable. And one of the things that came up is a gentleman in the audience at once said, you know, I wasn't going to read the book. My wife had it and it was just sitting there and then I had nothing to do. So I'm like, well, I may as well read the book and then I go to the book group or whatever. And someone else in the audience had said, what a great book this would be to train medical workers and medical staff and how, and like teachers and all those who might be dealing with someone who would intersect with this topic of grief. And he raised his hand and he said, I don't think it's just for those people. I read it and I really saw it as a manual of compassion training. Wow. And I think all of humanity could use compassion training right now. Wow. And, you know, before Sawyer died, I really hadn't experienced much death. My grandmother had died a few months earlier and we had, we were very close, but we had said our goodbyes. The last time we had seen each other, she lived far away. I grew up with her, but in the past several years I hadn't interacted. You know, I didn't have a very regular conversation with her. And so, but prior to that, I I had been to no funerals. My husband was Bishop and the first week he was Bishop, he was called to do a funeral. And then that became sort of his legacy that he was doing a lot of funerals um, while he was serving. And so I had seen death in a very, at a very long extended arm's length, but I hadn't really had that experience. And I thought, you know, I'm now living this and I didn't have much experience with death and grief before. I would have handled things. I, I know I've handled things terribly in the past because I didn't know. And a lot of my friends who I've met through different child loss groups say, I, uh, good for you sharing your story. Mine's too private. And I make it very clear in the book. There are parts of Sawyer's story and our story that will never be shared that are too sacred and too holy to talk about, not just in a book or on a podcast, but really ever I mean, that hospital room became our, our celestial room. I mean, truly. And, um, mm. wow. And, um, and so, so yes, there are parts that I don't share and that I don't want people to know, but I thought because of the situation of where we were, um, my husband was superintendent at the time. It was a very public, and the book talks about a lot of terrible things that happened. Um, but, you know, he was, Sawyer was rushed from his middle school. Everybody knew what was happening. 
I had no way to just be private in my grief. It was on the front page of the newspaper. We, you know, had a lawyer, not a lawyer. We had to get a lawyer because we had the news show up at the hospital wanting to tell our story and things like that. And so I, I couldn't keep my story private. And I sometimes wonder, would I have written the book? Would I be out in everyone's face if I didn't have that public experience? I don't know that I can't say, but I know that I didn't really have a choice that our story was out there. So I thought, well, then I'm going to make the most of it. I'm going to help people learn from it. When I sent the book out, I said, you know, it is not necessarily for those people who have had children die. It is for everybody who's walking that path or walking and holding a hand of someone who's walking a similar path. And then I kept getting reviews coming back from people who were just independent reviewers who said, you wouldn't know this, but I have lost a child. And I actually found it very validating to read. And so I was grateful to hear that because, you know, grievers, grievers don't need this book. Grievers know, right? But I have also found that grievers who are reading it are saying, oh, I thought I was the only one. I'm so glad I'm not the only one. I'm, I'm so glad I'm not the only one that wore sunglasses to Food Lion every time I went for six months, no matter what time of the day it was, right? Um, so I think I, my hope is that it's validating as well as informational and, you know, empathetic to those who are listening. So I want it to be compassion training. And I just love that phrase. And I hadn't thought about it when I wrote it, but, um, another component, as you were reading the chapter headings, there were two, I just wanted to touch on, but I want to give you a chance to jump in too, because I know I can talk a lot, but I want you at some point even though I think a lot of listeners intuitively know your, the answer, but I'd love you just, you know, you, you've been mentioned a couple of times you didn't want to go out. And when you did want go out, you would put like glasses on you. Yeah. And it, I'd love you just to explain why you didn't want to see anybody and why you didn't want to go out um, at some point in the podcast. Yeah, sure. And actually let's just do it now. Okay. Um, what better segue than creating our own, right? Um, so one time when I finally was like, okay, I'm going to go out. I, I took my daughter to a park that was pretty low, had low traffic. Um, but when I got there, I did run into someone and it was over the summertime. And so Sawyer had died in October and this was like the following August. So we were approaching our one year and the person ran into me and was like, Oh, how's your summer going? And I said, actually, you know, it's, it's really hard. Um, the school year was hard, but the summer is when the kids would all play together. So we're really feeling Sawyer's absence. It's just really hard. And she said, oh, still? And I looked around, like, did anybody else hear that? I'm like, am I losing my mind? Yes. Uh, <clears throat> yes, still, we are having a hard time eight months later with the death of our 10-year-old. Um, so it was hard to go out because people would say all of these things without even thinking about how they might come across or make me feel. So I didn't want to go out because I didn't want to have to make people feel better for making me feel worse. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. I so, think it's so smart. I think reason. it's creating boundaries and being self-aware of your, I don't think it's a sign of weakness or a sign you're not, you know, willing to move forward. I think perhaps you are moving forward by not going out because you're creating boundaries just to 
sort of not be re-traumatized with what people may say. Now, there may be some things that people could say would be very helpful, but you're probably guarded yes. because you've had some experience since Sawyer died with some difficult things. And so I think, I think listeners, I mean, I just, I, I look at that as you just being self-aware with your best path forward and me as a, a friend or an outsider, not sort of charting a path for you that kind of makes me feel good about your progression, but just exactly. sit, sort of sitting exactly. with you and what you know is best and maybe asking how, you know, and just the still words, pretty interesting. You know, I think of, and then I want you to come to these chapters. I thinking sometimes we even have, I don't want to be critical of anybody in our church, but sometimes we'll have a, I, you know, a talk in church or even admit perhaps a general conference talk where someone will talk about a family death and sort of put on a brave face and sort of role model for us, perhaps as a church, how we're supposed to move forward with kind of a brave face, a stiff upper lip, um, cite the doctrine that we know of eternal families and sort of perhaps not allow ourselves or others to grieve because we have a culture that's created this maybe i don't know if step up for lift and we just we because we have this understanding of, of the plan we shouldn't grieve like the rest of the world and so i think you're helping us to just kind of develop a better culture so that we can walk with people well thank you and you know i think it sort of also is reflected in this idea of like toxic positivity that yeah. i think sometimes members of our church can fall into that everything's good we're rainbows and unicorns we've got this you know and and sometimes we don't have this you know and that's okay and when we put on a front that everything's fine all the time not only are we invalidating the experiences of everyone else who's not okay all the time, we are making spaces that are toxic for so many people. And exactly like you said, if we're supposed to be offering a balm, but instead we're offering, you know, a poison, what is our purpose? What is our end goal? And are, are we reaching that or are we just worried about uh, we're, I'm from the South. So, you know, they, they talk about like putting pig, uh, lipstick on a pig, right? <laughs> like this idea that we're just sort of covering it up. Um, but, but yeah, I think that it's really important for us to sort of make space for the, the components in the middle. And, um, since Sawyer died, my husband and I have talked a lot about this. I think there's like a glorification of trauma in a lot of, talks that come from different pulpits. And again, not trying to put anyone on the spot or call anyone out, but I think there's this idea that I had this terrible thing happen and I'm good. I had this terrible thing. And so there, um, you know, secondary trauma is real. And so as we're constantly talking from the pulpit about these traumatic events and these awful things that happen, so we can then shine the light in the afterwards and say, but look, I'm fine. Um, you know, what are we doing to everyone who's listening? What are we triggering for them? You know, are we being sensitive to the lived experiences of the people in our Sunday school class, in our sacrament meeting? You know, are we walking a line that will, again, make church a safe space for everyone and not just people for whom everything is hunky-dory? Um, so... I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe I'm out in left field. (laughs) But I do know that we used to love general conference. And honestly, general conference is extremely hard for us now. Um, We 
typically start this first session and we watch until someone has had a death or a child loss. And then we turn it off and we say, we will go back and read it in the aftermath. Um, Talk to our listeners why, because obviously you're a committed Latter-day Saint. And yes, there are yes. committed Latter-day Saints that at times are triggered by conference and it's not a yes. doctrinal issue. It's, but just talk to us, those that are wanting to better yeah. understand why you're navigating general conference. Yeah. It's, um, you know, in the book, I quote a lot from elder Uchtdorf's talk about, um, third floor, last door. And it's interesting because a lot of people who've read it, who have no faith-based tradition, have said, that is, you know, those words are inspiring. Those words are amazing. I put that on my fridge, you know, and I believe those words and I believe what is coming out from our leaders. When I hear someone talk about being in the hospital, it immediately puts me back in the hospital. When I put myself back in the hospital, it is so easy to spiral and think, about the smells and the sounds and the places and the intense emotion that was in the hospital. So as people are passively talking about, oh yeah, he had this experience in the hospital. We didn't think he was going to live, but then ta-da, he lives. So not only am I now like a sobbing mess because I've been associated in time and space with Sawyer's death, but also I've been beaten down, not intentionally, but what did I do wrong? How did I not pray enough? Oh, was I two months late on my tithing? Oh gosh, if I had kept up with my tithing, maybe that would have saved him. Oh, we didn't get a general authority to pray for him. Maybe if a general authority had prayed for him, maybe he would have been saved. Or, you know, any of those things, you start to call into question your own level of faith because that's what we do as a culture, right? We stand up and say, he wasn't doing well. He, we all prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed, and then he was healed. So we create this cause and effect relationship. This person was sick. We prayed. He was healed. Obviously, there's a link. So when there's no link, well, that must be on the, this end. You know, It must be on the one end because it's not on the victim or the person who died. It's not on their end because they were the victim. And so I think that for a lot of people, not just general conference, but anytime you go into a space, testimony meeting or talks, any sort of space where you don't have a sense of what people are going to say, and you know that people maybe aren't as sensitive about your experience as you wish they could be, it's, it's, a, it's an act of bravery sometimes to walk into a church and sit through sacrament meeting. And I know for people who haven't had a similar trauma or trial, they think I'm totally off base and I understand that. And I hear what I hear the words coming out of my mouth and I don't know, maybe me eight years ago would have thought that too. But now seeing other people in their pain, sometimes just getting through sacrament meeting and a story is, is all they can do. So. It's a really good segment, Jamie. Thank you for being so honest and open. And I just realized that, um, we uh, can trigger people with the things that we say. And when we know better, we do better. And part of this podcast platform is, is, you know, people like you that have stepped forward and written a book to help us do better. Just like that man who read the book. (laughs) 
You know, Thank we just you. know better, we do better, and we're more sensitive. And um, and I want to come back to these chapter titles because there were a few you wanted to go. Are there conference talks? Are there, are there any conference talks I'm kind of thinking out in my mind where the speaker talked about death where the answer didn't come and somebody did die and they're living in that pain and there's no f- nice ending to the story. And is there any talks that sort of resonated with you that's ever been given in general you know conference like that? Um, there are a couple, I wish I had them on the top of my head, but I can't remember the talk right now, but um, Bishop Kasse, is that how you say it? Yeah. Um, he, he was balm to my wound at one point because they lost a child as well. And he says in his talk, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, I don't have it on me, but he said in his talk, you know, some wounds won't be healed until the eternity. Some wounds will not be healed in this life. That was profound to me. It was finally someone saying, it's okay. There will be a part of your heart that is unhealed until you die and are reunited with Sawyer. And that's okay. And that was so powerful to me. And I tell people that all the time, you know, our leaders, some of our leaders are saying there are some things that won't be healed until that final reunion. And that's okay. I wrote that down word for word. Some wounds won't be healed in this life. And I, it's just interesting. I wish listeners could see you because that just Bishop Cosset with that phrase, how healing that is, just, he didn't point you to some story, didn't point you to a doctrine, he just, which I guess he did in some ways, but he just validated your pain and the reality of the road you're walking and you felt seen and heard and understood by a senior leader of the church. Yes. And I'm just sensing how helpful that was for you. So helpful. And it's not very complicated what he did in some ways. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 disheartening that at some point, really, all we're looking for someone to say is, it's okay, you feel awful, you know, if, if that's our bar. Um, and I don't think that's exactly it. But, you know, this idea of how do you mourn with those who mourn? One of the things that I read a lot about in the immediate aftermath, in, excuse me, in the immediate aftermath was Job, right? So here Job goes through all of these awful, awful things, one after the next, after the next. And it continues. And, you know, the scriptures repeatedly say Job and he praised God. Job praised God. And I kept saying, well, how the heck did he do that? (laughs) There's no scriptures about that. There's no conversation about he screamed and yelled and got it all out. And then he was able to praise God or he sat in a circle with his friends and they cried it out and they talked and then he was able to praise God or, you know, we don't know what he did or how he did it. And that's, I think the hard part is that we have this line. We need to mourn with those who mourn and comfort those who stand in need of comfort, but we don't have a lot of how do we do that conversations. And so that's, you know, do I, I don't have the answers. You know, I get on these podcasts and people love that line, especially people who aren't members of our faith, who haven't read that scripture. They love that line. And they say, okay, so how do we do that? You know, people want, how are the 12 steps that we mourn those who mourn? You know, that doesn't exist. It goes back to relationships and communication. And you will know the 12 things to help your neighbor mourn if you know your neighbor, if you know what they need, if you know what they like, and if you know what's going on in their life. 
And you can't know that if you don't open up conversation and have have a relationship with them. And, and I think that leads into, you know, one of the chapters I wanted to touch on, which is the reciprocity of service and accepting service with grace. That was really hard. That was a lesson that I learned and I, I had no choice but to learn it really quickly. I have led a pretty privileged life and I have been the I've had the opportunity to give a lot of service in my life and I'm grateful for that. I have not had a lot of opportunities to accept service. And so being able to do that in a way that was humble, humbling and graceful and accepting and respectful. Those were things I had to learn along the way. Um, We had mounting bills from the medical procedures. And I had a friend who wanted to take up um, a collection to help us pay some of the medical bills. And it really bothered me. And I thought, no, 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 no. I can't take anybody's money because anytime I go to buy Cheetos brand Cheetos, (laughs) I will feel guilty. Like, well, maybe if I had bought generic Cheetos, I could have paid more to the medical bill or something. And I just had this extreme self-imposed guilt. And I had to learn. And she was like, Jamie, people want to do this for you. People live across the world, across the country. They can't do anything else for you. Let them donate to the medical bills. And, and I eventually did. And I'm so grateful because it made me realize that there's a whole other side to service that we don't talk a lot about. And I think sometimes we shame uh, unintentionally. I think we shame people when they are the recipient of service. And we tie some of that shame into that receiving. And that's not what Christ wants. You know, that's not how Christ accepted service. He let people wash his feet. And there wasn't like a no, 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 please don't do this. No, 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 I'm above this. You know, Um, we see examples in the scriptures of Christ accepting service and love from his disciples and the people he served. So why do we have this stigma that receiving service is not acceptable? I think it's a culture component that needs to be changed. I agree with that. Um, And I've certainly, I'm thinking my first missionary companion, when you talked about that, who just wanted to serve me and I wouldn't let him serve me. I thought that's what I did as a faithful Latter-day Saint is I, put on my stiff upper lip and that's right. my Puritan culture. And um, I was well enough off, you know, in my spiritual journey that I didn't need anybody else to help me. It's sort of like, I'll take care of my salvation. You take care of yours. But I realized what you're teaching us is we do better when we help each other. Talk that's right. about one of the challenges of church, even for some Latter-day Saints, they love going from three hours to two hours, but some don't. <laughs> I think my parents that are both 90 would love three-hour church. It's <laughs> right, right down the right. street and they would love more community. And so one of the challenges in that limited time is to have these kind of thoughtful discussions, especially when often the teacher is needing to teach, you know, Doctrine and Covenants right now, or in Relief Society and Elders Corbett's offering a conference talk. And and those then, I call it, sometimes it could turn into the best answer club. I don't want to be too cynical listeners where sure. the top, you know, 10 or 20% of the class that kind of, they have great answers. It's not like their answers aren't good answers and you want to hear those right. answers, but it creates a culture that, you know, that's what we do at church is, you know, 
a certain group of people kind of shine because they have the best gospel insights. And this vulnerability, this honesty, the messiness of our lives never really happens in the two-hour block. And I think it needs to happen because I think we're all a little wounded. Um, the older I get, and I think we heal each other in our woundedness by um, people coming together and helping us. So I don't know if you have any thoughts about how to do that. Then I thought as you were talking, I thought, well, that's what ministering is, is this ministering program that isn't part of the two-hour block is the time to do a lot of this, but then it's not sort of on a group basis and it's, you know, where we're really learning the skills you're trying to teach. So I wish you, sometimes I wish the fifth Sunday was more frequent. So you, someone like you could spend the whole time on a fifth Sunday just talking to a broad group of people. Cause I sometimes well, those fifth Sundays, because there is no sort of agenda in the Bishop or the East Saudi president or the elders corn president to say, this is what we're going to do. And there's, there's no preset agenda. Often those are, can be really helpful. Just any thoughts about. Yeah. Oh, Richard, you're just so right. It just, I'm like dancing and jumping around and saying, yes, 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 this, this, this. I can't tell you how many friends I have who are on the fence, faithful Latter-day Saints who need more, who need these meaty conversations who have nuanced faith beliefs that they need to have an opportunity to talk about and they can't get them because in this place that's supposed to be a safe space, it is oftentimes filled with judgment. And that's, we need, we need more than that. You know, we're past the day and age where we can just give the good answers, drop off the casserole and call it good. You know, we are not in that level of discipleship anymore. We're, we're too close to the end. We're too far along in our understanding. We need to go deeper. We need to know more. And there's this false doctrine out there that people always chime and say, but God won't give you more than you can handle. Where? Show me where. Show me where. Show me where it says that. Because that's exactly what God does, Right. He gives us more than we can handle so that we can rely on God. If it were just up to us to handle everything, there would be no need for the atonement. There would be no need for ministering. There would be no need for grace. That's not what the gospel is about. The gospel is about the atonement. It is about grace. It is about God and Jesus Christ filling in the gap. So, of course, you have to be able to surrender at some point and say, I can't do this. And if we don't have these conversations, then it doesn't give people the willingness or the confidence that they can surrender and say, okay, Heavenly Father, meet me in the middle, you know, that, that mind the gap. We're not minding the gap. We want to fill the gap with, again, casseroles and fancy quotes and quilts and things like that. But we really need to be filling the gap with conversations and deep dives into doctrine. And how we do that is by giving space and time in the limited places that we have instead of constantly having the same conversations. You know, you make the comment about the Doctrine and Covenants. The Doctrine and Covenants is filled with death and dying. And I only laugh, I will say, after... Like being a deep griever, I have a gallows humor that only grievers can understand. So apologies if it comes off uh, mildly offensive, but you know, 
the Doctrine and Covenants is full of death and grief. How many conversations have we had in Sunday school about death and grief? You know, um, I think that when we find a talk about faith, we, we want to talk about the overall thing. We want to talk about everything that we already know instead of picking up the, the, the piece of doctrine that's maybe at the end or in the middle that is somewhat challenging to our beliefs. We just want to skip over that and we want to do what we already know because that feels good and comfortable. And I think we're at a place here in 2021, now almost two years into a global pandemic where that's not working for people. And so what's happening is instead of getting the deep dives, as we continue to sort of passively talk about the same things, people are walking away and finding places and spaces that they can have those conversations in a meaningful way. And so that's my concern is that if we're not leading the way in conversations about things like the feminine divine or understanding trauma and grief, if we're not leading those conversations, other people are, and we will miss the boat and we will lose our faithful saints as we pretend like those conversations aren't critical right now. Jamie, that was really good segment. Um, that was one of the most profound things anybody said on this podcast is God does give us, God, God, does give us more than we can handle. Right? That is, I just got permission to feel things because you said that, that I've never given my permission self to feel. Oh. Um, and then what you went, where, where you went with that is where I think God wants us to go is we need God. We need the Savior. That is our doctrine. It's back to this, well, I'll just kind of go on my own and, and handle everything God's been giving me. And I could never tell anybody this is more than I can handle. I never open up in church with, I feel like this is actually more than I can handle. Mm-hmm, and I love where mm-hmm. you said there's really no doctrine that says that. In fact, our doctrine, as you pointed out, is just the opposite. We're meant to mm-hmm. come here to learn how to handle things that we can't handle on our own, including unspeakable tragedy like Sawyer's death. And that then we need each other and we need right. the Savior. So I, and I love... I also love where you went with D and C. And so sometimes I think I'm not a gospel doctrine teacher, but I sometimes think, and I don't want to be critical of any gospel doctrine teacher because everybody's doing the best they can, but sometimes those can just kind of turn into a historical sort of fact-based lesson. These are the facts. Okay. This is, and it's almost like a history one-on-one of D and C whatever. And that's good because we need to understand the facts of our history. Mm-hmm. And I sometimes wonder if we should encourage um, members of our congregation, especially those who have been in the church a while, is to learn those on their own and then come to Sunday school and say, okay, we're going to talk about this. What does this mean for us today right. with our situations we're dealing with? And here's a few. Um, Jamie's dealing with the loss of Sawyer. So what does this Doctrine and Covenant section that has this really traumatic section can teach us or what can Jamie teach us about this? And so you sometimes springboard from the lesson content into, so what is this, what is, we do that a lot of times in the Book of Mormon says, what is this application for today? But I think that's where we can um, potentially do the kind of things you're talking about. Um, but that 45. was five. Really, oh, sorry. But I, any more, um, I also wrote down, one of my guests sort of coined this term and it resonated with what you're saying. A lot of people that I know don't have a crisis of faith 
in the sense that it's that they have a crisis of belonging. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, and that mm-hmm. and some have a crisis of faith and there's actual doctrinal questions that are wrestling with, but others are just simply that people like them given the things they want to talk about or their lived experiences or just don't feel belonging at church that sometimes just can't have these conversations or friends and the toxic perfectionism or some of the cultural things that you're helping to break down. Cause I think that's why I love sister Alberto's talk where she talked about her yes. father's suicide. And yes, that is one of my favorite conference talks ever. And um, yes. just to yes. normalize talking about suicide and what she, and she did that in such a, I think it honored him in some way that she talked about him. Of course. And her whole family and her individual ministry. And if, we all sister saw Sister Roberto. We know that we're safe with her. You would somehow know that she could talk with you about Sawyer and that she uh-huh. would have the skills to sort of be present with you as you talked about school Sawyer, just because you would, I'm putting words in your mouth, just because you know she's walked really complicated roads. And obviously Sawyer's situation yes. is different than her father. I don't want to make those yes. the same. No, um, so no, I, I'll turn I hear it back what to you're you. saying. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. And, you know, it's interesting. Um, when I finally, and it's a whole other segment that I read the book, if you want to know. But anyway, from the time that I, Sawyer died, and then we were going back to church and, and being in public. And then when I finally, it was about a year later when our bishop felt like, you know, he could approach us and say, okay, are you guys ready for callings? We will start small, you know, and we're like, there is no small, it's all ginormous to us. And everything seemed magnanimous, even, you know, bringing treats for nursery or whatever. But, um, we, um, we, I was called to be the Relief Society teacher. And so I train people for a living. I am fairly good at speaking off an outline or, you know, impromptu speaking, and so I've taught lessons for years with just some bullets and some talks. I like to use the actual talk and then we, you know, go from there. But it was very important to me that I did not have to look at the audience when I was giving my Relief Society lesson for the first several. And I would just share and, and read it. And then I would go home. And I would have people over the next several weeks, you know, catch me in the hall. Thank you so much for what you said this, this, and suddenly they're launching into their entire life story. And I do not even know their name. And I think it's because of what you said, they haven't felt like church was a space. They could have those conversations. And I had one woman who my husband got in the car and he's like, Oh, you're going to laugh. I said, what? He said, someone came up to me and said, your wife's ready to start a revolution and I'm in. (laughs) And I just laughed because I'm like, I am so not, you know, the revolutionary type, so to speak, but it's, I think people are ready to talk. They want to speak. They need answers. And God puts us in one another's path to offer answers. And so if we're not having the conversation and not letting people ask the questions, God can't share the answers. And so I just think, again, I think the time for these conversations is long, long since past that we start. Um, So if, if nothing else, even if people don't read 
the book and they only listen to the podcast or they read the book and they hate everything I said in the book. They hate everything I said in the podcast. Great. At least they're talking to somebody about it. You know, stand up for what you believe. Share and tell me why I am so wrong, please. Because at least that's a conversation about it. And I think that that is what's important is opening the dialogue, taking some of the shame away from some of these difficult topics and just making them regular talking points, you know, regular conversations so that people feel licensed to, to discuss and ask and hopefully heal in some way, shape or form. Thinking of Sawyer right now. Wondering if he can hear you. I I thought of you earlier talking about his heavenly mother and his heavenly father, but I, then I thought Sawyer would want to be with you right now. (laughs) So I think when we (laughs) think these kids are in a better place, in some level that's true. They're in a good place, but I can't speak for Sawyer and you can, you're the closest mortal person to him, (laughs) but I think he'd love to be in your family. Mm, thanks. You know, there's science out there that says, um, you know, when a woman gives birth, part of the child's DNA is left with them. And, um, that gives me this weird comfort, but then it makes me feel sad for my husband. Um, but you know, it's tomorrow is Thanksgiving. We're recording it early. I'm sure it will not air, but, um, (laughs) he would, um, insist on making, we call it snicker salad. And because I had the word salad in there, he insisted it gets served on the vegetable table, but it's like grapes and cream cheese and Cool Whip and Snickers bars. And, you know, it's like, <sighs> Sawyer wants to eat Snickers salad with his siblings and, and he can't. Um, and he can't, and he wants to. And he wants to. Um, there is one other thing and I don't know. I know we're like at time go for it and maybe we can cut something out, but it's, um, I really want to talk just for a minute about organ donation. Please. Um, Sawyer was an organ donor. He, um, we say he was fearless in life and generous in death because he gave, uh, seven organs. Um, he, he, he was able to, give the call to seven people that we never got that call that, um, his, his life was over, but seven other people were going to live because of it. And, um, I just don't think as a congregation, as a, as a church, we really talk about organ donation a lot when we were in the hospital and we had made that decision, our branch president, who was amazing, by the way, in the aftermath came and was like, I just wanted to tell you that I talked to the state president and we just wanted to let you know that like, it's okay. Like that's good doctrinally. Like if you want to donate organs and you know, I didn't think about it, but then in the aftermath, I thought that never even crossed my mind, but obviously it did to some people. So I think there are some people who wonder what's the church's stance on organ donation. And I mean, I, I do not say this lightly, but Sawyer was literally able to be seven people's savior, literally. So, you know, what does the church think of that? 
I think I think we know and I think we feel that of course that's okay. Um I had someone at his celebration of life came up to me and said, a member of our congregation, and she said, I mean, literally at his celebration of life, oh, I heard you did that. I'm a nurse. And I don't even think I could do that. That just sounds awful to me. I just don't think I could watch my child go through that. And I thought, I am living this. I am literally living this right now. I do not care what your experience is. I do not care. So until you're in my shoes, do not tell me what you think I could handle or you could handle. I do not care. Like I literally just buried my child. I do not care. And that goes back to that sensitivity thing, that being self-aware. But I just wanted to make sure that, you know, anytime I have this platform, that I take the mystery around organ donation away and try to shine a little light on it to say, of course, it's unnatural. Of course. Bearing your child, totally unnatural. I get it. But being able to save someone's life It, there are no words. There are no words. And so anytime I get a chance to say, hey, be an organ donor, at least look into it, at least do the research, talk to your, you know, heavenly parents and say, hey, I'm thinking about this. It's at least worth a conversation. So thank you for letting me get my two cents in about that. We've never talked about organ donation in 400 some odd podcasts, Jamie. So I'm glad you brought that up. And I'm reminded of your earlier counsel suggestion to us is have conversations ahead of time. Um, so this is a conversation we could have at church and say, what is the That's church's right. policy on organ donation? And then we could go home as families and talk about this and sort of decide where we stand on this before we are faced with it in the high emotional situation. Also That's thought of, right. Also thought of Sawyer, you know, I don't know lots about the afterlife, but I think, you know, I do strongly believe that he, his spirit that fills human emotion is still in the afterlife and yeah. he is grieving. And I, I wonder if it gives him purpose that is healing to him to know that seven people are alive because of him. And he, just why, why that helps you and others and obviously the seven people, I I sometimes imagine what people in the next life are feeling, knowing they're still human and how perhaps that's a little mm-hmm. healing to Sawyer and to know mm, that you did I love that. that. And, and perhaps Sawyer can that. watch these people. And, um, you know, I sometimes put names, I don't know if this is okay, but sometimes I'll put the name of people that have passed away recently on the prayer or the temple because yeah. I... I, I think they feel the same things we do. And I think they need Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother's love and support, even though they understand the plan and they're in a quote unquote, a better place. I think it's still very difficult, especially with someone as young as Sawyer. I'm going to totally. read a quote here, listeners, and I'm going to turn it over to Jamie. And my brother sent me this quote, and it's sort of a great ministering quote. It's by David Osberger. Uh, being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they're almost indistinguishable. And so I think what's one of the great things with ministering and just one of the tools that we can develop as Latter-day Saints is to listen to people and just sit with them in their story and not shift it to our story, not like that woman did about organ donation that shifted it to 
just sit with you and your story and have the mental discipline, especially in a situation like you're in, just be fully present. Um, and I think we can just do better at that. And I think we can do better culturally. So I'm going to leave you with the last word, but Jamie, um, this is listeners. This is going to come out right after Gretchen Evans podcast. who also talked about deaths. Um, this should be episode 482 that Jamie's doing 481. The run, run by four is also, um, tragedy of death. And maybe it's not by coincidence. Um, both of these brave women step forward to share their family stories and the principles they're teaching in these back-to-back podcasts are very consistent with each other and consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ and give us really important insights on how we can do better. So please tell, I want you in your closing comments to let people know the website because we didn't give your website mm-hmm. a plug, but please check out this book listeners. It's called Heartbroken But Not Broken by Jamie Clemmer. And thank you, Jamie, for being on the podcast. And you honor Sawyer, this wonderful 10-year-old kid who'd be learning to drive right now. And there's pictures <laughs> in the book. He's just full of life and goodness. And it's just so sad that he's gone. And mm, um, thank, thank you. you for your courage to share your story and help us do better. And you're terrific. And you're very brave. And mm, you don't want to maybe have those you. labels, but um, you're helping us become create Zion as we hear people's Mm. stories. So I'll turn it back to you for final comments. Well, thank you, Richard. And, you know, live and learn and love, right? That's, that's what you're saying. And this idea of listening to one another is how we show love for one another and, and vice versa. And I think that's a really powerful, powerful sentiment. All of us have very complicated and sacred journeys And the only way I think that we can become Zion, as you said, and also become the disciples that Christ wants us to be is by doing exactly that, listening and learning and loving. And we cannot do that alone. We cannot do that in a silo. So when we open ourselves up and go to some of these places that are uncomfortable, we're not only helping ourselves, but we're helping other people to know that they're not carrying that weight alone. So thank you for the opportunity for letting me speak and ramble at times and probably laugh at inappropriate things at times. Um, I just appreciate it. Thank you so much. And tell us your website. Oh, yes. That's the part I'm really bad at. Um, My website is www.heartbrokenbutnotbroken.com. And there's a trailer for the book on there. If you're on the fence, you can watch the video trailer and you can buy the book at Deseret Book or Amazon or um, Target.com, any of those. But, you know, really just love your neighbor. That's that's the best thing you can do. If you're impacted by this, reach out to someone, step out of your comfort zone and do something for someone that lets them know that you're thinking about them. That's the best thing you can do. That's great. And Christ's personal ministry is one of the greatest examples of what you just invited us to do. So this is Jamie Clemmer and Richard Osler signing off from another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. <laughs>